Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times with the latest WWE edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and we are just a couple days removed from WWE Crown Jewel, but that doesn't mean we are lacking in content for you on this WWE episode. We have tons still to talk about from SmackDown, and boy, oh boy, do we have a lot to discuss from Raw this past Monday night. But don't you worry, the Silver King will be here with you to break it all down momentarily. As we get today's show started, allow me the opportunity to remind you that this show so please folks stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me go back to being marks for the silver king adam silverstein vintage chris vanini head on over to apple Podcasts and spotify drop those five star ratings take a moment of your life out leave a five star written review for us on apple Podcasts as well let everyone know why you enjoy the show why you listen and tell them why they should subscribe because those written reviews do a lot in helping us add subscribers and increase our download numbers which are super important for the future of this podcast also please do not forget to follow us on twitter at getting overcast you know what you're going to get there episode drops news uh commentary live during the major shows GIFs, videos, all that type of fun stuff. You can get it all by following us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Now, on today's show, unfortunately, the Silver King will be riding solo. Vintage Chris Vanini was otherwise tied up. But I will say this. If there was any WWE episode of this show that I didn't mind doing on my own, it's this one because I have so much to say coming out of Raw on Monday night that I don't want there to be any time limits. I don't want there to be any handcuffs restricting me. I need the time and space to discuss all of these topics. And just as it so turned out, Chris not being here allows me to take a little extra time and do exactly that. I also, before we get into the entire show, I wanted to touch on all of your contributions to the program uh, over the last couple of months. And certainly I'm talking about DMs and tweets and your five-star reviews. All of that is super important. But a number of you gave us financial contributions not that long ago. And I wanted to provide an update on that again, because I have the time and space on the show with the Silver King riding solo today. Uh, I did a lot of research. I found the exact equipment we need, which is great and the production that we need in order to increase the sound quality of the show and just bring you an overall better product when it comes to interviews, um, you know, turnaround time from recording, all that type of stuff. But part of what is going to be required uh, in that is moving the show. So we're going to be moving it uh, from the current host that we have to a different host. That is obviously a significant undertaking. There can be issues when you do something like that. And given I have never done anything like that before, I am not going to do it at a time where things can get royally screwed up, especially in the middle of football season, which of course affects my you know time weekly that I have to dedicate to the show and the same uh, for Chris as well. So the plan as of right now is to move the show, buy all the new equipment, get everything set up at the start of 2023. It's either going to be shortly after the calendar changes in the new year with a couple weeks remaining until the Royal Rumble or immediately after the Royal Rumble. That way we are ready to go 
for the road to WrestleMania. So you can look for that coming soon. Uh, new equipment for us, which means improved sound quality for you, uh, better soundboard. So the drops are going to go right into the episode, hopefully faster uploading time, and maybe even some cool stuff with video on the back end of that as well. All of that hopefully coming soon to your favorite wrestling podcast, Getting Over. Now with all that out of the way, let's get into today's show. And this is how today's show is going to be structured. Initially, I didn't even have a main event. That certainly changed given the main event of Monday Night Raw. But I'm going to give you a quick little overview of WWE television this week. I do have some bonus analysis coming out of Crown Jewel, things that we didn't say on the instant analysis, but I wanted to double back on it. Just a couple quick topics. After that, we're going to get into the main event. And then, of course, we will cover the good, the bad, and the ugly from this week in WWE. Now, it's really tough to remember what WWE television is like on a week-to-week basis when there's 52 episodes of Raw and 52 episodes of SmackDown every year. And there's so many years of television to consider, not only just doing this podcast, but all of the podcasts I've ever been on. And of course, all of the years I've been watching wrestling, you know, in my entire life. There was a SmackDown earlier this year that was so dreadful in terms of its creative and its booking in every way that every single segment was seemingly worse than the one that preceded it. And it was probably the worst episode of TV in 2022. And I I really wish I could remember exactly what that was so I could actually go back and review it again. Because what we got Monday night from Raw, it gives that SmackDown a run for its money. And the disparity in quality between SmackDown on Friday, which was a taped go-home show for a pay-per-view in Saudi Arabia, the disparity in quality between that show And Raw on Monday night was shocking and completely flipped with SmackDown being strong, despite all of those things that I just said, and Raw being relatively awful. That's not to say that over three hours there was nothing good on the show, but when you look at it in totality, and even if you took each hour on its own, it was not a good episode of television. Now we're going to get into this in detail during the main event, particularly when it comes to what happened at the end of Raw. But it is just stunning to me that WWE could come off such a successful, even if controversial, you know, premium live event like Crown Jewel, Blood Money in the Sand, and present an episode of television that was this poor as Raw was on Monday night. There's been a ton of positive momentum for the WWE product as of late. And Survivor Series War Games is coming up. That show appeared to be in the process of getting revitalized, which is really exciting. But this is the lowest I have been on the WWE product. And yes, it's only one show. It's only three hours. I'm not exaggerating. But it's the lowest I've been on the product in particular since Vince McMahon gave up the book, since Trips got the book, which was something we were all notably excited about. Raw was just so poorly booked and constructed that I am not sure, given the very short window between now and Survivor Series War Games, that they're going to be able to fix it. Again, that's not to say that everything was bad and it's not to say that Survivor Series is going to be a bad show. None of that. I'm not saying any of that. For the last three months, WWE, the creative, the booking, it has been eons better than it was the prior couple of years. But that is how bad Raw was on Monday night that it actually has me questioning some of that stuff. There is so much fire inside of me coming out of Raw that I wish I could just go off on it now. But I do have something else to get to before it happens, as I mentioned. And 
it also gives us a little time, maybe gives me a little time to calm down uh, before we get there. So let me go through some of that bonus analysis I was talking about from Crown Jewel. Then we will move on to the main event and the good, the bad, and the ugly. But get those fire emojis ready because they're going to come in handy. So let's move to that bonus analysis from WWE Crown Jewel. It's really just three things I wanted to talk about. The first is Roman Reigns. He deserves so much more credit than he is getting for that Logan Paul match. We were effusive in our praise of Logan in the instant analysis, and deservingly so. He was exceptional on Saturday. But nothing he does works without Roman. Because beyond the wrestling, you look at Reigns' expressions, the emotional storytelling that he did during and after the match. It was phenomenal. We are in the middle of witnessing an extremely special run with this guy. Now, is Roman Reigns the star that Hulk Hogan or Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Rock, John Cena, Macho Man, Randy Savage, is he the star that any of those guys were? No. But this particular run, from a character standpoint, from an in-ring quality standpoint, from a just an overall dominance standpoint of the division. And when it terms, we're talking about kayfabe, right? The character and the superstar. I'm not saying it's unmatched, but it is tier one. It is among the most notable and interesting and spectacular things that I have witnessed in professional wrestling. The way this guy has gone about this character, the way WWE has gone about telling this story, And no, that's not to say that over the two plus years, every month was perfect. Certainly we were angry that he missed a large swath of the summer by taking vacation and not defending the championship. There's arguments to be made about giving him the undisputed title and what that did to Raw. I mean, we've gone over all this stuff before. So none of this is saying it's perfect, but you're not going to have a two or three year storyline and have every single thing that you do be perfect. It's just not going to happen. And when you look at this in the grander context of what Roman Reigns is accomplishing, um, the storytelling that WWE is giving us, the character work and development and all of that stuff, you wrap it together and you put a bow on it. I think we're going to look back on this a decade from now and say, this is one of the greatest accomplishments from a booking and storytelling standpoint in professional wrestling. That's how impressive it is. And if you rewatch that match from Saturday, which I did, I think you're going to get a lot of those elements that I'm talking about. It's just super impressive and Reigns deserves all the credit in the world for it. I did also want to regrade the women's tag team championship match from that show. It was tough watching Crown Jewel in parts like I did Saturday because of college football. And when you do that, it's difficult to just get an overall sense of a match, especially if you start and stop at three different times. Rewatching it, seeing it bell to bell start to finish, I'm bumping it up another quarter star, four stars and an A minus. You guys know I normally don't regrade stuff because my grades don't really matter that much, right? It's for you. It's to let you guys know, hey, this is a match you should go out and see and here's where I rank it compared to others. There's no database on my rankings. A five-star Silver King rating, an A-plus Silver King rating doesn't mean anything, right? In the grander scheme of the wrestling universe. But they matter to me because I wanna make sure that the superstars and performers get the credit they deserve when they do things well and that creative and booking and sometimes, yeah, the superstars uh, get the criticism that they deserve when things don't go well. So, you know, this deserves its flowers and I wanted to make sure the women got that. It also goes to further 
my thoughts that damage control is not as bad as everyone has said. The women from an in-ring standpoint are really figuring it out. We saw Monday, we'll get to a little bit later. As a group, they're dynamic. They're starting to figure it out as well. I'm a damage control fan. Has it been bumpy? Yeah, absolutely. Has it been, have they been as dominant as a group called damage control given their return and given their circumstances should have been? No, right? And Bailey not beating Bianca Belair for the title at any point, it's certainly a surprise. And we'll get to, you know, what that means for the future on on additional shows as we go on here. But I wanted to give them their flowers for what happened at Crown Jewel. I also wanted to note how much time they got to celebrate the title change after the bell. We talk all the time, we criticize AEW for not letting moments breathe. This is a perfect example of letting a moment breathe. Go back, watch Crown Jewel, see what I mean at the end of that match. And lastly, Rhea Ripley. Obviously, we love her on this show. And her potential, her ceiling has skyrocketed over the last few months. But at Crown Jewel, she just looked like one of the coolest characters in WWE history during the Judgment Day entrance. Seriously, go back, watch the entrance again, and don't watch any other superstar. Forget Dominic, forget Finn Balor, forget Damian Priest. Just keep your eyes fixated on Rhea Ripley. There may be few wrestlers in all of professional wrestling right now that 100% completely understand and embrace their characters the way she does. We're talking Roman Reigns, John Moxley, MJF, Sami Zayn. She is on that level right now in terms of character work, presence, and presentation. So go back, watch that. Obviously, we saw more of it from her on Monday night, not to the same degree, but I wanted to make sure that she got a shout out as well because everything that they are doing right now with Rhea Ripley is working 100%. Now, just remember, for those of you who criticize me occasionally for being too negative about a certain topic or a certain company, whether it's WWE or AEW or NXT, whatever the case might be, just remember how praiseworthy and positive I was with that bonus analysis for Crown Jewel because the tone of this podcast, it may take a turn momentarily as we slide into the main event. And the main event begins and is really fully focused on Raw Monday night coming across to yours truly like a fever dream. Uh, It was the worst television episode of this short Triple H era by a mile. I mean, it wasn't even close to the next worst. And among the bottom two television episodes that WWE has produced this calendar year. Now, later in the show, you're going to hear more bads and uglies from this Raw than probably the last couple of months combined. Few segments were booked well. Some of them were completely nonsensical and maybe even insulting to our intelligence as wrestling fans. The Wilkes-Barre crowd that Raw had Monday night was horrendous. And it literally and legitimately challenged Lafayette, Louisiana for worst of all time. That's not an exaggeration. They were so bad, they could barely register singing Seth Rollins' theme. There were over 5,000 people there, and capacity was only like 5,600, so it was mostly sold. And it sounded like there were 500 people in the building. And this was not a miking the crowd issue. The fans sat on their hands doing nothing from the moment the show started almost until it ended. 
Now, granted, there wasn't much to go crazy about, but there were certainly a fair share of moments that should have popped them and would have popped any other crowd. Now, if Raw was in front of a better crowd, would some things have hit better? Yeah, absolutely they would have. But I took that into consideration when doing my grades. I don't grade stuff based on crowd reaction, though crowd reaction certainly tells us whether something is getting over or whether it's not getting over. But when a crowd is not reacting to anything, then certainly we don't have any help there, right? To kind of lead us in one direction or the other. The goods later are still gonna be goods, even with the crowd being weak. But the overall booking of Raw, like I said, it was awful. There's just no other way to put it. There are so many reasons why. But the most obvious example was the creative behind Seth Rollins' US Open Challenge, which took place throughout the second and third hour of the show. So that is why that storyline specifically is the main event this week. And once we get through that, of course, we'll go over everything else that happened across SmackDown and Raw, as always, in the good, the bad, and the ugly. So Seth Rollins opened hour two with a US Open challenge. Judgment Day surprisingly answered his call. So we're off to a pretty interesting start here. They surrounded the ring shield style. Finn Balor got a mic. He called back to their Universal Championship feud, and he promised to cost Rollins gold, just like Rollins cost him the Universal title. I mean, the guy got injured during the match. I don't know that Rollins really cost him the title, but nevertheless, it played. The OC interrupted for a standoff with Judgment Day. Rollins tiptoed out of the ring. It was very funny what he did there. AJ Styles said their feud is far from over. Balor said the only thing in the ring that is over is Judgment Day, which I thought was a very good line. Styles said the woman that they have been searching for to help even the sides found them instead of the other way around. And then cameras completely missed Mia Yim jumping out of the crowd to lay out Rhea Ripley at ringside. Styles and Balor went at it one-on-one for 15 seconds and AJ hit Dominic Mysterio with the Styles Clash. Judgment Day, they were injured. They were infuriated backstage. Ripley said OC could bring in a whole damn army and it wouldn't matter against them. Then she walked by Bianca Belair with the women looking each other up and down. The OC later put Yim over pretty big in a promo with Mia saying, we'll see how tough Rhea is against someone that can actually hit her back, alluding to the fact that the guys haven't touched her, which obviously makes sense. Yim also promised to pay for drinks which popped the Good Brothers. So really fun tongue-in-cheek moment right there. Now, this was set up and executed extremely well, except for the director completely missing the key moment, which was Mia Yim jumping out of the crowd and attacking Ripley. What ruined it was the crowd, which gave no reaction to the AJ Finn Balor standoff, Yim's return, the Styles Balor moment when they were wrestling, or the finish of the entire segment. All of those deserve pops. And if you put that same segment in front of Literally any other crowd, maybe with the exception of Lafayette, Louisiana, maybe Corpus Christi, Texas as well, any other crowd, it gets big pops for all of those moments. Now, could Mia Yim's appearance have been done better? Absolutely. No question. But there was nothing wrong with this segment other than the crowd. It just gave it no energy and no life. And beyond that, let's point out, it's great to see Mia Yim back in WWE getting a real shot after that retribution bullshit. She is a far better signing than Emma or Sarah Logan by comparison. And putting her with the OC in a feud with the Judgment Day and Rhea Ripley right away makes her feel like a big deal. The last woman, don't forget, to align with AJ Styles was Liv Morgan, who won Money in the Bank 
and became SmackDown Women's Champion. So Mia Yim is in a great spot. She got a chance to speak on the show. She looks great coming out of, I believe she was with Impact for a while. Apparently her run there was really good. She did some great in-ring work over there. So this is a great development and I'm very excited that WWE brought her back. I've been down on some of the people who have returned recently, not her. Very, very excited that Mia Yim is back in WWE. Plus, let's not forget the Bel Air and Ripley tease. That was really nice. Now, I don't think that's going to happen soon, but maybe that's the plan for WrestleMania, where they're going to keep the title on Bianca Belair. We thought that they would take it off of her, but maybe they keep the title on Bianca Belair. Rhea Ripley wins the Royal Rumble, and Ripley Belair is the big match at WrestleMania. And you know what? For the number two women's match, assuming that we're still getting Ronda Rousey and Becky Lynch for the other one, that is an incredible number two women's match. In fact, you could legitimately make an argument that it would be the number one women's match. And that's not to say that Becky Lynch's star or Ronda Rousey's star has diminished, but whereas they're known better, the fans that watch the product weekly are far more likely to pop for Bianca Belair, who has clearly become the number one babyface, and Rhea Ripley, who, I mean, you can say she's not the number one heel, but... Very quickly, with just her winning a couple of matches, she could easily slide into that role. So I am very excited about all of that. So you may say, well, Silver King, didn't you tell us that you were about to get really negative? You just, you praised that entire segment. Yes, I did. Because I loved that opening segment. And I had really high hopes for the way the rest of this show would play out, given what we got here. You had Rollins cowering out of the ring, OC and Judgment Day igniting their feud, the, the fourth person coming in for OC, the woman, Mia Yim returning. These are all awesome developments. And then they continued, unfortunately, with the United States Championship Open Challenge. So Rollins confirmed later backstage that the challenge was indeed still open. In the main event, Rollins said it was his 10-year WWE anniversary. He got a couple chants from the crowd. He talked about elevating the United States Championship and opened the challenge again when Mustafa Ali appeared on the Titantron, ready to accept. Suddenly, he got pulled off the screen like cartoon style by the arm, with Bobby Lashley stepping into the picture. Lashley started ranting about taking gold from Rollins when Ali attacked him, but Lashley basically shrugged him off, he just picked him up, threw him into the road case, he bounced off one and fell down onto presumably a mat, I guess, on the ground. So we were curious coming out of Crown Jewel if Lashley was indeed turning heel, yeah, Lashley is turning heel. This made it clear. So we had the United States Championship match, at least as scheduled, Rollins against Lashley. Rollins was attacked before the bell, just like Lashley did to Lesnar on Saturday, but Rollins actually countered the attempted barricade spear with a super kick. He dumped Lashley into the steel steps. Lashley got up on him again. He beat his ass at ringside with a face buster and a helicopter into the post. As officials tried stopping him, he then did an almighty spinebuster into the announce table before getting forced to the back by officials and referees with no challenge seemingly taking place. And as Lashley is walking into the backstage area, Austin Theory walks out with the Money in the Bank briefcase in his hand. And Raw actually went to fucking commercial break. When it came back, Theory was standing over Rollins. He cashed it in officially. He said he wanted to do it. They made the announcement. They rang the bell. Rollins got rolled into the ring. Uh, Theory punched him for a near fall. Then he hit a neckbreaker over the knee for another near fall. 
He went for A-Town down. Rollins countered it with a pedigree attempt. But Theory actually reversed the pedigree for another near fall. And I thought that was a false finish because hitting the pedigree on Rollins, given everything that had already happened to him, it would have made sense for him to lose in that spot. Rollins escaped A-Town down a second time. He dumped Theory outside. He caught his rolling move with a powerbomb. He had a super kick and two rolling forearms. Theory then countered the stomp with A-Town down, ready to take the title. When Lashley pulled the referee out of the ring by his leg, apparently that knocked the referee out. Uh, Theory called him an idiot standing you know, in the ring. So Lashley pulled him down, beat his ass outside. He did two helicopters into the post and then he knocked him out cold with the hurt lock. Fans actually cheered Lashley for this because guess what? He's beating up on a heel. So that confused the heel turn a little bit. The referee finally came to after getting knocked out during the chaos. He returned to the ring. He starts counting Theory out. He gets to nine. Theory saves himself by sliding into the ring, but predictably ate the stomp immediately with Rollins luckily retaining the title. Now, why the referee wasn't counting Rollins down because he was down on the canvas simultaneously, I have no idea. I don't think a ringside countout supersedes one inside the ring. So he really should have been doing both simultaneously with Rollins rising as Theory slid inside. Now, before we get to the meat of this, let me first say that the double turn with Rollins and Lashley, if you put that in a vacuum and there wasn't a Money in the Bank briefcase involved in this entire thing, that was executed well. Now, you do have to question the decision of turning Lashley heel, given the crowd response that this guy has been getting over the last number of months, but the change does make sense and the crowd clearly wants to cheer Rollins as of late. So I get the decision to make the switch from that standpoint. But beyond that, I was completely flabbergasted at this booking. There is so much wrong with it that it's actually tough to contextualize. I'm floored that Triple H booked this Raw and booked this segment. I mean, after last week's awful third hour rating, was the goal simply to try and get as many eyeballs on the show as possible by just creating chaos and stacking chaos upon chaos. Because if you look at the pacing of the show, they had Rollins open hour two, which is the highest rated hour during Monday Night Football. And they didn't even mention that the open challenge would then take place in the main event. So if you're watching during that hour and the goal is to keep you until hour three, you don't even know that you need to stay until hour three, other than Rollins saying, hey, yeah, the challenge is still open. So you don't know when that's going to transpire or take place. So they tease theoretically that for the main event. Then as you get to that segment, Lashley was teased as a challenger who would potentially beat him. They then teased an MITB cash-in. They actually did the cash-in and then they didn't pay off any of it. But not only was it not paid off, Money in the Bank is now gone and Theory didn't even benefit by losing legitimately. The goal obviously is to win, but if you're gonna lose, you wanna at least look good in a loss. Now, unless something shocking happened off screen and Theory is like being released, and obviously I hope that's not the case, there's just no explanation for this booking. I am not saying he couldn't have failed cashing in or that he couldn't have cashed in on the United States title. But the combination of both, 
the failure and doing it for a mid-card belt and him looking the way he did. I mean, even if he's being sent to NXT, let's make believe. Why not let him actually cash in on Roman, wrestle for six minutes with a couple surprising near falls and just fail? It would make sense in the Reign storyline coming out of him nearly losing to Logan Paul at Crown Jewel and Theory would at least have a feather in his cap Hey, at least I had the balls to go after the king. I missed, but at least I did it. You cannot tell me now that they're doing the John Cena match at WrestleMania with Theory coming out of this. And it's fine if they're not, but it seemed to be the move given the tease earlier in the year. Now, could this be the idea of dragging Theory down to build him all the way back up? I guess that's possible, but it feels wholly unnecessary, especially given he's a heel. And Cena would have to be a face in that scenario if they were fighting. You do that type of booking for a pure white meat baby face that you want to get over. There are literally hundreds of other ways they could have booked the briefcase off of Theory without him winning the title or looking this bad and losing. He could have cashed in on Braun Breaker and NXT in a real way and lost. And it still would have been better than this. He could have cashed in during the triple threat match where Braun Breaker was defending the title and pinned someone else, JD McDonough, to take the title off of Breaker without him getting pinned. I mean, the conclusion that people are coming to with this booking is that Triple H hates theory. Except we know, or at least we think that's not true. I mean, WWE offered him to us for this show because they want to feature him. He's one of those people that seemingly they want to get behind. Theory was part of Triple H's NXT. He was heavily featured as a member of The Way. Everyone knows he is one of WWE's top prospects with a crazy bright future. So again, unless something wild happened, this just doesn't make sense. Consider the booking here. They had him cash in the Money in the Bank briefcase during an open challenge. Now, you say perhaps that could have been part of the storyline, that it was an open challenge shot and not a money in the bank cash-in, except he blatantly demanded the cash-in. They announced the cash-in. So that theory is kaput. And then not only did he cash-in during what was already an open challenge for a free title opportunity, he did it for a mid-card title, which is asinine in its own right. And then... He lost the briefcase, not after a 25-minute banger with Rollins, like we got a couple weeks ago or last week, whenever that was, but because of a third party, because of Lashley. And this is not a third party in Lashley where you can book a Theory-Lashley feud and he can get over on Lashley and you can say, wow, look at this great moment for this guy who got screwed. It's heel-heel. And Lashley's one of the most dominant performers in the entire company. So Theory certainly is not going to get over on Lashley. And yes, okay, we need to be fair before we continue and point out Theory was technically protected here. He did appear to outsmart Rollins by cashing in during an advantageous situation. And he only lost because of Lashley. Again, one of the most dominant wrestlers in WWE. So yes, the guy was given an out. He got screwed but he still cashed in on the mid-card title during an open challenge and became the fifth person ever to fail on a cash-in. Of course, this one 
for a mid-card title. The other four failed on a world title. John Cena and Braun Strowman, they were already established when they lost. The other two, Baron Corbin and Damian Sandow, look what's happened to their careers. Sandow doesn't exist in professional wrestling anymore. And Corbin hasn't been able to figure something out. I mean, he's had, you know, moments here, whatever. But what do we talk about every week? We criticize the fact that this guy, his career is aimless at this point. Now, beyond the theory part of this, where the hell do we go from here? Theory got completely screwed out of the briefcase, which is now out of creative plans. Ali has for weeks been built up as someone who should be a contender for the title in kayfabe. One would think Lashley is going to get a shot unless they do a suspension storyline. Lashley said in a social media interview after Raw, his focus is on kicking everyone's ass until he gets the title back because fans cheered for Lesnar when he attacked Lashley, and then they cheered for Rollins to beat him. Now, are they going to pull a triple threat or a fatal four-way at Survivor Series and have Ali be the fall guy? That would be terrible for him to finally get a big match and be the third or fourth wheel in it. Now, did they put the title on Rollins initially so Lesnar could beat Lashley without winning the title? Maybe, but then if they're putting the title back on Lashley, if he beats Rollins for it, you're going to do the rubber match with Lesnar. So wouldn't Lesnar win the title anyway at Royal Rumble or WrestleMania? That doesn't make sense because Brock would then have the title that you just ensured he didn't win in the first place. When Rollins does lose the title, it should be to put someone fresh over. And guess who is someone fresh who could have been put over while giving Rollins an excused loss? Austin Theory. You also look at what happened over the rest of Raw, and we're going to talk more about this later. Did they feature Cedric Alexander and Shelton Benjamin on the show in squash losses for both of them because they're reforming Hurt Business? That would be a positive. But to be frank, look, we criticized Vince McMahon at the time for ending Hurt Business. It was the right move in retrospect, at least when it comes to Lashley. It killed Cedric and Shelton, no question. But Lashley soared as a top-tier babyface on his own without those guys and without MVP. It's probably the best that Lashley has been booked, at least from a reaction standpoint, in his entire career. So if Hurt Business does reform, certainly that's not a negative. But Theory and the Money in the Bank briefcase did not need to be sacrificed in order for that to happen. So yes, I'm just legitimately at a loss here. Like, this booking may have effectively killed The Money in the Bank gimmick, think about it. The women's briefcase has never lasted more than a couple of days. The first person who ever won that was a man, you know? And here are the last six men's winners of Money in the Bank. Corbin, who lost after two months. Strowman, who lost in a no contest after two months. Lesnar, who beat Rollins following a mixed tag team match after two months. Otis, who was the worst winner of all time. I mean, along with Sandow, I guess. He won for no reason. Miz beat him for the briefcase. They held it for 287 combined days, which was actually a huge positive that it wasn't rushed. But then Miz became a transitional champion, not a fresh superstar getting over. You had Big E, who ruined his cash in the the excitement of it by announcing it on social media ahead of time. Now, he did beat Bobby Lashley, in a great moment and become champion. But again, he only held the briefcase for two months and his title reign was horrendous. And now you have Theory, who held it for more than four months, positive, was a fresh guy being built, positive, 
only to lose it in a mid-card title match during an open challenge in uncompelling fashion. I don't even know if uncompelling is a word. How often on this podcast and the shows I had prior have we talked about the purpose of Money in the Bank being to get someone over without a championship, to exist for a long time and to be used right even if it doesn't result in a championship win? While Liv Morgan cashed hers in quickly to our dismay, at least she won the title and she has been completely elevated by it. That's a positive. Theory here, maybe not the winner we would have chosen, but he was being elevated by it until Triple H took over and pulled the rug out from under him. I mean, we were positive about this year's results coming out of Money in the Bank. It wasn't perfect in terms of what we would do from a booking standpoint, but we were positive about it. And now, at least for theory, how can you be? There have been other poor usages of Money in the Bank previously, but holy shit, this is up there with the worst not only because of the booking, but how it was produced. The surprise cash-in is supposed to be a moment. Think about Dolph Ziggler. He's the paradigm for doing this on television. Rollins, obviously, at WrestleMania. The last two men's cash-ins have been telegraphed just because of Monday Night Football and ratings. With Theory this year, they went to a fucking commercial break. Talk about taking the air out of a moment. In what world did it make sense for him to delay his decision or for WWE to go to commercial during a live moment. That would be like Patrick Mahomes leading the Chiefs down the field on a two-minute drill, down six, and they get to the 10-yard line and you're like, okay, let's go live. When we come back, maybe they'll be in the end zone. Maybe they won't be. It's just ridiculous production. It makes no sense. The point of this is to say there has not been a truly great Money in the bank cash in for the men across six years. The last person to do it effectively was Dean Ambrose in 2016 when he cashed in on Rollins after Rollins beat Reigns and all three of the Shield members held the title in the same night. That was really well done. It just feels like this gimmick is dead. Now it can be revived, of course, but my heavens, it is now at its lowest point. Now, perhaps the goal is to bring it back at WrestleMania and do that match. And therefore they wanted to get it off theory quickly to leave a gap in time before it's awarded to someone else again. But there are so many better ways again to take the briefcase off him that does not excuse the booking. Triple H has done so well since taking over creative in August that he had completely earned our trust even through criticism. But this put a major dent in that for me. I don't see how this can progress and be positive for all four of these guys involved, Rollins, Lashley, Theory, and Ali. You know, we stay away from the term buried on this podcast. And it still does not apply to Theory because as we mentioned, he was protected with the booking. And remember, this guy is only 25 years old. His career is literally just starting. He might be wrestling for who knows, 20 25, 30 more years the way guys are going these days. But as a heel, he had everything taken away from him to no fault of his own. There's no redemption arc there. This is as close to a burial as you can get without actually flinging the dirt on the grave. It's like digging the hole six feet deep, but leaving a rope by the edge so someone can maybe climb out if they have enough energy. Again, I want to clarify this comment because it's not only about him losing 
or only about him cashing in for the US title. It's the combination of those two things plus him doing it during an open challenge. It's the triumvirate of it. This is very similar to the criticisms I had of Wardlow's booking in AEW. He wins the TN title. He gets no significant programs. There's a world championship opportunity. He's the top guy getting cheered and the most dominant wrestler in the company at the time. And he just chooses not to go for it. Dumb booking is dumb booking. And making wrestlers look stupid is never good unless it's literally their gimmick. There's just been no one who has suffered more booking-wise in this Triple H era than Theory. And none of this is to say that there's not a booking plan in place for Theory. I am quite sure that Triple H has this thought out. Yes, I remember Roman Reigns telling Theory at Madison Square Garden, your daddy's not here anymore. And yes, I remember Kevin Owens and Johnny Gargano both shitting on Theory backstage for using the easy road to get to this point. But let's not forget, between then and now, Theory was off of television for like a month due to personal reasons. And that story was not picked up upon his return. He's just been in a couple random matches. So if they did want to tell that story and set the stage for this, they did an awful job bringing that back into the consciousness of the weekly viewer. Why not have him try and fail to cash in during Roman Logan at Crown Jewel. Then you could say Theory's frustrated again at another failure. That would have set the stage and explanation for him trying to cash in on the United States Championship because then it would have been three or four times that he would have been thwarted going after Roman and at least it would have made sense. But when you combine all of this together, that is why this was notably poor and frustrating. And no booking from here on out is going to convince me that this, as it was presented Monday night, was good creative or the best path they could have taken to end the briefcase run. If I believed in the supernatural, I would tell you that Vince McMahon did some voodoo shit or there was a Freaky Friday situation and he took over Triple H's body for one night and booked this show. Except Theory got the bad end of it and clearly Vince wouldn't have done that given how he had booked Theory previously. When we go and do our year-end awards, which are coming up very soon, this probably won't win because you have the CM Punk, John Moxley, you have the Wardlow stuff, you have many other things that have happened in WWE and AEW that are, quote, worst of the year. But this is going to be a nominee. I'm going to make sure it's a nominee because that's how nonsensical it was to book this storyline in this manner. Even now, after speaking for however long it's been that I've been ranting on this, I just can't make sense of it. And we've gone through every single twist and turn for me to try to give you a reason why it makes sense. And it just doesn't. So I'm going to stop. I'm going to move to a DM about this. And maybe next week, depending what happens on Raw, we're going to get some clarity. But as of right now, holy shit, this is bad to the point that there's not even, I don't want to like ruin it with sound drops and take away from the point I'm making. I kind of just want to let it settle. So allow me to go to Sean McDermott at I'm Bored Brother, who sent in a DM on this situation. He wants to play devil's advocate for the ending of Raw to tell us why it worked. He said, with the bloodline around, Theory was never cashing in on Roman, or realistically, he wouldn't successfully cash in on Roman. He also said, the United States title gets pushed up in the eyes of the viewer so that it's much more important. A heel waited until a champion was vulnerable while down. 
And if Money in the Bank was to return to being a mania match, it had to go away to create that opportunity. He said, now obviously Theory wasted a guaranteed WrestleMania main event spot by cashing in, and he didn't answer the open challenge, which would have saved him from using the briefcase. Personally, Sean thought doing it for the NXT title would have been the best way. Here's my point. The US title was already elevated because Lashley did that and Rollins was holding it. Reigns has both titles. They have not unified them. So there's no need to further establish the United States Championship. You've already accomplished that. I did mention the WrestleMania aspect earlier, like you did. But again, it's not about them taking the briefcase off theory. It's the way in which they did. There's hundreds of better ways that they could have booked this, including through NXT, which is what you mentioned. Imagine theory cashing in during that Braun Breaker triple threat, winning the title and being the NXT champion. You would say, this guy just got featured on the main roster for a really long time. He's now the NXT champion. Maybe that brings eyeballs to the show. At a minimum, it makes him a very legitimate NXT champion, just as Dolph Ziggler was previously. And it creates a connection between the main roster and NXT. So yes, that would have completely worked. There are so, and he wouldn't even have to hold the title long. He could hold the title for a month or two months, lose it to Carmelo Hayes, let's say. And then he comes back to the main roster and you restart the storyline with Owens and Gargano and everyone criticizing him for taking the easy way out, going down to NXT, rather than just trying to win it on the main roster and cash in on Roman Reigns. And then you, you're you right back in it and maybe he does turn babyface and you give him a redemption arc. But doing it the way they did it here, it just doesn't make sense. And that is why I am so incredibly frustrated with the main event booking on Raw, but it was just a microcosm of what we got across the entire episode. So allow us to get into everything else that happened on Raw, most of it negative, and everything else that happened on SmackDown, the vast majority of it positive, as we move into our final segment on today's show, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I'm sorry, Miss Rosie Perez, I call a spade a spade, it just is what it is. But you can't give credit to anything dude says. Say dude to give you ice and you own some Johnny. It's time to wake up the dead. You sound a little naive in the articles that I read. All right, so let's get rolling here with the Intercontinental Championship, the main event of SmackDown. Gunther defending against Rey Mysterio backstage. Rey cut a babyface promo about proving things to himself and even his son with another title reign. Gunther said he would defend his title with dignity, respect, and honor, unlike Rey, who has none, which is why his son turned on him. Gunther fell backwards off the ropes with Mysterio on his back. Rey made a run with a cool spot where Rey set Gunther up for a 619. He stood up and Rey got him on the ropes again. He hit a 619, but when Rey went to the top, Gunther just threw him off by his head. Gunther went back to the top rope himself. Ray tried to hurricanrana, but Gunther stopped it and tried an avalanche powerbomb. Instead, when he went to complete that move, literally as like Gunther was powerbombing Ray, Mysterio somehow countered that into a hurricanrana. The crowd was going wild for this. Gunther caught a seated senton, but Mysterio countered back with a sunset flip powerbomb. Gunther avoided the frog splash. He came back with a shotgun dropkick and a powerbomb for a false finish. Ray tried another 619, but Gunther stood up to catch him running with a boot and he added a massive like mid-air short-range clothesline 
to get the win. This was a tremendous match. It's always awesome when Gunther wins without using the powerbomb or his splash as like a finisher, because whenever he just wins a match with a chop, a clothesline, a lariat, it just leaves such a lasting impact that this guy is a real deal beast who can beat you in a variety of ways. It did start slow, no doubt about it, but it picked up massively down the stretch. And I did feel the powerbomb Hurricanrana stuff was a little bit repetitive. Still, this match was great. I'm going four stars and an A minus. I'm thinking if it was on a premium live event without commercial breaks and there was a little bit less powerbomb Hurricanrana, which just was like, it happened a dozen times, it seemed like during the match. If those two things changed, this is a clear A match. And if anyone else says it's an A match, I completely support you, but I did go four stars A minus. Um, really great work from Ray and Gunther. They delivered a quality main event for a championship in the Intercontinental title that has been massively elevated on SmackDown. And it's really great to see it being treated with the reverence it deserves, both when it comes to like the way Gunther is presented and the quality of matches that he's putting on with the championship on the line. Now, WWE announced Friday on SmackDown that there will be now the SmackDown World Cup, which begins this coming Friday and will feature eight men's superstars competing. I think it seems like it's for a trophy. It was announced right before the Intercontinental Championship match. So I'm wondering if maybe the winner gets a title chance coming out of that. Not totally sure. Now, one thing we've talked about wanting with Triple H taking the book is more tournaments. And it's really good to see that they're doing this. It just is a really weird time when they could have held this until after Survivor Series War Games when there's a two-month break with no premium shows. Especially when that is going to be when the actual World Cup, like for soccer, for football, is going on. Or maybe the idea was to do this ahead of it to get people ready for it. I don't exactly know. But given the short build to War Games, it just seems weird to shove an eight-man tournament into a three-week window with nothing specific on the line. I mean, maybe the finals of it are either on the go-home SmackDown, so that way there's a big main event, or they put the finals of it on War Games. But it's just odd to do it this way. It's better than not doing it at all, and it's hopefully the start of some more fun things that we're going to see across these shows. I assume, given it's a World Cup, we're going to see superstars from eight different countries. And that's actually really easy to do with SmackDown's roster because it's quite international. There's people from all over the world on the men's side on SmackDown. So all in all, it's a good idea. I think I forgot to mention that Gunther and Rey Mysterio earlier was a good. I I assumed that you figured that out by me saying it was four stars and A minus. But that match was good. And this announcement of the SmackDown World Cup is good as well. And now the Usos opened Raw alongside Solo Sokoa, putting themselves over ahead of the New Day match, which would make them the longest reigning tag team champions ever if they successfully get past them. New Day interrupted. The Usos put them over, but said they're the second best team. New Day reminded the Usos are chasing, saying they're actually the ones because they're first generation stars and the Usos built their legacy off their family. The Usos said, yeah, that may be true. That creates a lot of pressure on us. Xavier Woods talked about Real pressure being sitting and catering, doing nothing, creating a YouTube channel to get noticed, and getting booed when New Day initially debuted. The Usos claimed there'd be no Kofi Mania had they not forfeited in the gauntlet match that allowed New Day to win when they were already kind of beaten down and gave Kofi the title opportunity. So this is going hot. And is everything hitting? You know, maybe not, right? Like Xavier Woods talking about sitting and catering. How long ago was that at this point? He's been on top, you know, with New Day for a long ass time. 
But some of it's hitting. When all of a sudden, Matt Riddle enters out of nowhere. He comes out with his bongos, talking about forming a band. He was presumably going to ask Woods to join with the trombone. The Usos told him to shut up. Riddle then got each of the New Day members to hit his bong. Solo refused and no-sold it. Jimmy actually played, I think it was Umaga's entrance theme, which was pretty cool that he did that. Uh, Riddle said it's tap, tap, pass, which made me laugh, even though I really didn't want to. Uh, Then teased Jay about being Usi, so he pushed the bongos away. And then Riddle made a six-man challenge for really no reason whatsoever. I just cannot stress how poor this segment came across. Now, there were solid points and callbacks in the promos initially, but the guys just lacked energy. And it was probably because the crowd was lifeless and it didn't react to anything they said. There were so many, oh, type of moments where you like, you kind of add that exclamation point and they didn't give a single one of those. It's really tough to get juiced up when you're on the mic doing a promo battle and none of your lines are getting reactions. So it was good, but it just wasn't hitting. And then when Riddle came out, the entire thing fell apart. Why does he care? Why is he involved? Why did they take a serious segment that's leading to a title match on SmackDown and jam bad comedy into it? Why would you make this match without a reason? And by the way, why were these guys even on Raw in the first place? They set up the match last week. There's an entire roster that needs TV time. This went from like borderline good to straight bad. Riddle was totally reverted, as we've talked about, to this goofball character for no reason. And he has been completely wasted under Triple H the last couple of months. Like, I I just don't understand why they are bringing him back to that gimmick when he was operating so well coming out of the Seth Rollins feud. Are you telling me he only gets aggressive when you insult his family and his character and all that type of stuff? And otherwise, he's just a happy-go-lucky guy? It just doesn't make sense. They did such a good job with Randy Orton, um, you know, kind of changing his character a little bit, still being a goofball, but also, you know, finding a serious side, finding the Viper within him. And now he's still doing Randy's moves, but he's no longer aggressive. And he's just an idiot who calls bongos bongs and makes weed references. Like, I don't hate that gimmick, but we got a taste of something that was better. And now you're pulling that away from us for no reason whatsoever. So we can play the bongos with Elias and jam himself into a New Day match with the Usos for no reason whatsoever. This was just a terrible conceptualization of a segment. So it led to the match, New Day and Riddle against Usos and Sokoa. We got two minutes of wrestling before it went to commercial. Then we got four minutes of wrestling before it went to a second commercial. Kofi hit Solo with a Tornado DDT. Riddle went on a torrid hot tag run, hitting the bloodline with all of his signatures. He missed a moonsault with Jay hitting a pop-up neckbreaker. Jimmy blind tagged and hit Riddle with an Uso splash. Woods broke it. Sokoa took out New Day at ringside. Riddle eliminated him with a springboard floating bro. Jimmy followed with a tope suicida. Riddle came back with a draping DDT, but Solo blind tagged before Jimmy ate an RKO and he caught Riddle with spinning Solo for the win. Now the first two thirds of this match were whatever, but once we actually got wrestling, it was fantastic because that's what you would expect with six talents of this caliber. The right team won. I'm wondering if this set up Riddle as the fourth or fifth man for war games for the baby faces. If so, his insertion here at least makes a level of sense, but to do it in the comedic way when everything else going on around the bloodline, yes, I know Sammy is comedy, but when it comes to like 
the feud with the Brawling Brutes and the feud with the New Day, the wrestling aspect of it is serious. So to inject Riddle in there, it was just out of left field and it was very weird. But so the initial segment, a reminder, bad. The match though was good. It was a really nice bounce back from the opening segment. Bianca Belair, Asuka, and Alexa Bliss came to the ring. Uh, Belair was angry over a parking lot confrontation. Now during their entrance, a Bray Wyatt logo again flashed on the Titantron. So clearly, I mean, I'm assuming it's not for Asuka or Bianca Belair. So clearly this is something real that's happening with Alexa Bliss, just something to keep note of going forward. Uh, Damage Control entered with Dakota Kai completely flubbing a promo and bragging about winning the titles back. Bliss pointed out it was thanks to Nikki Cross. Asuka and Io Sky started talking trash to each other in Japanese. Asuka kept calling her stupid or an idiot, or I'm not sure the exact translation uh, in Japanese. Io ranted back at her and then called her a bitch in English and all six of them brawled. Belair said this was war and it would end in war games and it got zero reaction from the crowd. Cross then attacked her from behind. Belair ate a rose plant and Cross hit Bliss with the elevated twisting neckbreaker for a second time. So it's just so tough to judge these segments because of the silence from the crowd. There was nothing wrong with this other than Belair really rushing the War Games declaration, which just did not land in any way. When you do that War Games and you know it from William Regal, you have to do a pause and you have to enunciate it and you have to give it emphasis. We're gonna settle this in War Games. Like that's how you deliver War Games. You don't say, this is war and we're gonna decide it in War Games and then someone attacks you three seconds later. Like it just wasn't executed well. Some of it's her fault. Some of it's the fault of the person who attacked her, which I think was Cross. It just, that was not solid. And then the crowd didn't react to it. You don't even give the crowd an opportunity to go, oh, or cheer or anything like that. Asuka and Io were the clear highlight of this entire thing. Honestly, it may have been the best thing that happened on Raw in totality, but there was really no reason given for this continuing, like literally none. Dakota speaking, instead of Bailey, was nonsensical. I know that the idea of giving Dakota some mic time to build her up is a good idea. I don't disagree with that. But when you're setting the stage for something like this, you need to put the mic in the hands of the person who can deliver it the best. And that person, without a doubt, is Bailey. And then we come out of this and there's only seven of 10 women needed for the match that have been announced. No one came out for the faces as a fourth and no one even came out for the heels as a fifth. Either would have worked given the short build. Now, maybe with a hot crowd, this would have come across better. But I have to say bad just because it landed with a thud. But I will admit, this is a borderline. It's one of those that could really go either way. And maybe if this was done with a better crowd and if Bailey did it, and if Belair just paused a little bit, all of a sudden we're praising it as a really good segment. And then we go back to the second Wyatt reference with Bliss on screen. This no longer seems like a red herring or a a fun little tease. One must assume that she will head in that direction. I'm not a fan of the move, but we're gonna have to wait and see how it plays out before we praise it or criticize it. Later backstage in the show, Dakota was telling Cross it was great to have her on their side after her initial attack because they all clearly understand one another as women who were forgotten and left behind by WWE. Bailey said Cross didn't have to hold in her anger until war games, she could let it all out tonight against Dana Brooke. So there was a scheduled 24-7 championship match, Dana against Nikki. Bailey was on commentary and she basically refused to answer questions and told the other guys just watch the match. Cross 
dominated. She hit her elevating twisted neckbreaker and won the title in three minutes. Then she walked out stoic, seething actually, without the championship. That led Bailey to grab the title and put it over Nikki's shoulder. Then I think we went to commercial break and we came back and we saw them walking backstage and Cross was walking in front of Damage Control. Damage Control going behind her. They're glowing. They're really excited for her. When all of a sudden she just pulls the title off her shoulder and the goal was to throw it in the trash can. Instead, it careened off the side of the trash can and landed on the floor. But the point was that the title is trashed. It's officially retired. And I gotta say, I appreciated the character development of Nikki Cross here. She's not just crazy for crazy's sake, but rather fully focused on delivering pain and punishment. And she just doesn't give a shit about anything else other than that. Squashing Dana, you know, was it the best? Not really, but it also wasn't really an issue. It's Dana Brooke. Like, no offense to her. I like her. I think she does have some potential and she's better than people give her credit for. But they created a situation where there was a direct reasoning for the 24-7 title to return and be trashed because it's just meaningless to Nikki. You do have to laugh at it bouncing off the side of the trash can. So symbolic and apropos for this 24-7 title that the trash doesn't even want it. It was just a microcosm of the entire existence of this belt. And because of all that, I'm actually gonna give it good because it really wasn't bad. But holy shit, if Dana joins these faces at war games, there's just gonna be no defending that potential booking. So let's hope that's not the case. And again, I say this as someone who likes her. She cannot be in the war games match. There's also no defending having four matches on Raw that were three minutes or less with the lone women's match being among that group. I am fine with this match being short in a vacuum as long as there was another women's match on the show that got seven, eight, 10 minutes, whatever the case, you cannot have one women's match on a three hour Raw and have it be three minutes long. It's just ridiculous. Now, CJ Pierre at CJ Track One, he wrote in, I'm pretty sure Charlotte joins Bailey's team. And while the thought is to bring Sasha and Naomi back for the faces, I don't know how you leave Becky out of this match. Damage control took her out, so it makes just as much sense for her to be on the team with Candice, who is already feuding with them. So I guess my main question here, CJ, is why would Charlotte join Bailey's team? Like, Bailey's team is made up of people who have been overlooked and forgotten about. Plus, Bailey's already the alpha. You don't bring Charlotte in and be like the number two alpha when she would easily step above her. That just doesn't really make sense. The person who makes the most sense for that team would be Dewdrop returning as Piper Nevin. Now, the longer WWE waits, the larger the expectation becomes that yes, Sasha Banks and Naomi are the two teammates for the faces, especially if the spots go completely unfilled until Survivor Series and like a mystery move. But if they do wait, whether until the last week or whether until Survivor Series, and it's like Candice LeRae and Shotzi, I mean, holy shit, are people gonna be pissed off? Now, Becky Lynch would be great. And you're right. She has a reason to back up Bianca Belair and Asuka since they all made friends when she did the face turn right as she was getting injured. So maybe it's Piper for the heels and Becky and Candice for the faces. I would be 100% okay with that. Charlotte to me doesn't make sense. And if you're not gonna do Becky and Candice, then it almost has to be Sasha Banks and Naomi. I don't know how you would get around it otherwise. 
at least when it comes to, you know, fans being excited about the booking and caring about the match. So let's go back to SmackDown. We had Liv Morgan against Sonya Deville in a no disqualification. This opened the show. After a few minutes, Liv got aggressive outside and hit a pair of tope suicidas. She answered crowd chants with a table. She put it parallel to the ring. Deville tried to pull her backwards off the apron, but instead of fight, Morgan just shrugged and pushed both of them backwards through the table. A pile of chairs wound up in the ring. Liv got a second run with a springing codebreaker. Sonya took Liv off the ropes with a powerbomb into the chairs. She gave it a great sell for a near fall. Morgan then countered D- Devil's Advocate, uh, hitting the codebreaker and then nailing Oblivion into the stack of chairs for the win in 15 minutes. This was tremendous. Like they both worked their asses off here. Sonya's selling for Liv was top notch and Morgan completely came into her own with her gimmick during this match. It was already working. This solidified it for me. Her expressions and mannerisms were on point. She even took time during the match to like connect with this young girl at ringside. This was a really good TV match and one of the longest non-title women's matches that WWE's had on TV in quite some time. There was just nothing but good here. And not for nothing, wasn't this match like way better by comparison than Live Against Ronda Rousey from Extreme Rules? It was basically the same style match, just executed far better by Sonya. Staying with the women on SmackDown, we had Shayna Baszler against Natalia. Ronda Rousey came out with Baszler, who was fully back to her NXT style of like joint manipulation, slow wrestling. Uh, Wade Barrett called back to her NXT run, just like he did for LA Knight, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. Uh, Baszler worked the left arm the whole match. She booted Natalia out of the sharpshooter and pulled her down for the Kirifuda clutch. Natalia tried to counter with a pin, but Baszler flipped her out of it for a knockout win in five minutes. And then after the bell, Rousey convinced Baszler to go after Natty again. So she lowered a knee pad and hit a lifted knee right into Natalia's face. And Natty sold the shit out of it, like almost pretending to have a broken nose. They popped a blood capsule in her nose. There was bright red blood everywhere. Now, Michael Cole, he said it was the old Baszler, and he's exactly right. This is what we used to get in NXT from Shayna. And it was awesome. Yeah, her matches can be slow and plodding because of it, but not every wrestler needs to be identical. Plus, Unlike in NXT, Shayna is not going to be this dominant, undefeated women's champion on the main roster. The biggest surprise to me was that WWE actually used a blood capsule here. Now, that's a clear change in policy, but it completely sold the devastation of Baszler's knee. In other words, it was the perfect situation and the appropriate situation in which to use blood, in this case, fake blood. Even the match length was appropriate going five minutes, instead would have would have been probably two or three back in the day. This was exactly what it needed to be, and I'm going with good here as well. Now, going back to LA Knight, like we were talking about, he fought Ricochet in a scheduled match. There was a ring walk promo from Knight who called the fans incels and went after Samantha Irvin, the ring announcer, for getting his hometown wrong. He also called Ricochet a gymnastic jerk. So Rick hit a huge tope on him before the bell on commentary. Barrett went over all of Knight's bona fides from NXT, and he basically shit on old WWE creative, taking him from being forced to basically change his gimmick to now what he is. Uh, Knight missed a springboard moonsault, and it was honestly comical that he even tried one. Rick took Knight off the top rope with a Hurricane Rana, hit a running shooting star press. The finish was a reversed roll up back and forth with Knight grabbing not only the tights, but also the middle rope to get the win in 10 minutes. This was exactly what it needed to be. Knight held his own, he got the win. Ricochet was the star of the match. He got most of the moves, but he also got a full excuse for losing to someone who needed the win better in Knight. And 
Knight also got heat off the finish. People really booed him for it. So I thought this was the best case scenario and it was good for me. Uh, the Miz over on Raw said Johnny Gargano's entire interview last week was a lie, that he was contacted by a major Hollywood producer who wanted to tell his story, but it would take some time. And in the meantime, he would sue Gargano for defamation. Johnny came out and blew the whistle on himself for telling a couple lies. He revealed that the producer was actually a private investigator he hired who was wearing a hidden camera. Miz stood there just shell-shocked, watching as he admitted on camera that Gargano told the truth. He said that he stopped paying Dexter Loomis because too many questions were being asked, but Loomis should actually be thanking him because he was previously unemployed. There was also a really fun moment here where Gargano decided to play the video on the Titantron, and he pulled a universal uh, remote out of his pocket. He said he brought it from home and he just like clicked play and then it started playing on the Titantron. Just one of those funny Johnny Gargano things that, you know, if you've seen him before, you know him from NXT. Tongue in cheek, just funny stuff. Uh, So we got Gargano against Miz as a match. Avoiding the Gargano escape, Miz wound up on the apron where he ate a huge super kick and a flinging crossbody over the ropes. Miz avoided a Gargano kick and hit a spike DDT. Gargano ate it kicks. They traded super kicks. Gargano rolled through a skull-crushing finale attempt and hit a tope suicida. Miz then appeared to get pulled under the ring before emerging with a turnbuckle wrench, and he was pretending to defend himself from whoever pulled him under the ring. Uh, The referee jumped out, looked under the ring himself. Miz then hit Gargano with the wrench and got the win in 16 minutes. There was never anyone under the ring. Miz crawled backwards himself, and Loomis, after this was all over, attacked Miz with a chair while he was on the ramp after the bell. Um before getting chased away himself by WWE security. The booking here I thought was pretty smart and inventive. On a show that really lacked quality wrestling, these two were solid in the ring together, even if Miz did struggle to keep up with Gargano. You could definitely argue that this going 15, 16 minutes was totally unnecessary. This should have been an eight, nine, 10 minute match. It's very rare that I'm gonna say a match was too long, but if you took some of that time away, you could have given it to all the other matches that we're about to talk about in a moment, especially given this was already going to be a cheating finish. So why do you do a 16-minute match with a cheating finish? This just had no reason for going so long. All in all, though, I was entertained and I did find it to be good. We had Baron Corbin against Cedric Alexander. JBL put himself over. He rightly shit on the Wilkes-Barre crowd. To his credit, he also put over Cedric Alexander on commentary. After Alexander went on a short run, Corbin caught him coming back inside with end of days for the win in two minutes. We're a month into this now with no explanation of what JBL has done or what he is actively doing for Corbin. His gimmick is just completely unchanged. It doesn't make sense, the pairing, why it's happening, what the purpose of it is, where it's going to go. Corbin doesn't speak anymore. And now he might just be less interesting than he ever has been before. Stop trying to make fetch happen. It's not going to happen. Whatever this is with Corbin, it's just not going to happen. It's not working. Then we got Elias against Otis. Chad Gable interfered, and Otis won with the world's strongest slam in two minutes. And then we got Austin Theory versus Shelton Benjamin. And this happened, obviously, before the main event segment with Theory. Theory gouged Shelton's eyes while he was on the top rope and won with A-Town down in two minutes. So Corbin squashing Alexander and Theory squashing Benjamin when those guys are never on TV, it's not much of an issue on the surface. But why not have that first match with Corbin and Alexander go six or seven minutes and let Alexander entertain the crowd and showcase himself? Because he's a really good wrestler. 
Why not give Theory and Benjamin five minutes so commentary can go over all of Shelton's accolades, let Theory flash, and get him over as a threat because by beating Benjamin, that actually matters. It's something that he can put in his cap again and say, hey, I beat a really good superstar, especially before what transpired later in the show. And while the win was great for Otis, for Elias, he just got brought back, hasn't won shit, is paired with a big name in Riddle, and got squashed by half of a tag team that isn't wrestling tag team matches. So again, great for Otis, but what did that really accomplish? It was non-competitive. And on top of all of this, as if this could not get any worse, Cedric Alexander lost his all-time great entrance theme. In the end, I could not find a single redeeming thing about any of these three matches. So it's a triple ugly, 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 ugly. Zero point zero. Zero point zero, Mr. Blutarski. That is one big pile of shit. Three uglies, three sound drops. This completely flew in the face of how Raw has been booked over the last two and a half months. If I didn't know better, I would think Vince did this. Like, like again, that's the type of booking we're talking about here. We've had plenty of criticisms of Triple H's booking already. But this, this is the worst. It was just a total waste of time. Three matches that accomplished absolutely nothing. Now, we talked about, you know, Alexander and Benjamin. Is it possible, given what happened with Lashley and Lashley going heel, that they're reforming the Hurt Business? I guess, maybe. But why would you job them out in this way? At least make them look decent so that when you do reform the Hurt Business, if you do reform the Hurt Business, that them as a tag team seems legitimate again and they can contend for titles and you can get excited about them. This did nothing to accomplish any of that. Let's go back to SmackDown. Santos Escobar with Legado del Fantasma said he always thought highly of Shinsuke Nakamura, but he's been left with no other choice other than to make an example out of him next week. Selena Vega co-signed saying Legado's growing empire cannot be stopped. This was a nice little promo segment ahead of what should be a really exciting singles match. I mean, you're talking about two of my favorite wrestlers in WWE, Escobar, Nakamura. Can't wait for that. This will be a banger if it's given enough time. Obviously, this was good. Emma backstage expressed her surprise and excitement about returning to WWE and fighting Ronda Rousey next week. Zaya Lee came up saying that Emma lost, which proves she's weak. So Emma just gave her a straight forearm to the face. Like, I kind of want to give this a good just because Zaya was on TV again, but there's really no grade because nothing happened. I do like that they're starting to develop more non-title women's feuds, and it's good for them to both get time. I do wonder what happened to Raquel Gonzalez. I do wonder what happened to Shotzi. Not saying them as a team, but they need to be on TV wrestling. They should be involved in a lot of stuff. So it's just weird to not see them this week. And we also got a fifth Viking Raiders vignette. Something actually happened this time with Sarah Logan painting the guy's faces with like black paint. Again, nothing to really write home about, but at least they did more than just repeat basically the same promo uh, for the upteenth time. So, you know, that's the good, the bad, and the ugly. Just when it comes to SmackDown, it was a good show, especially for a go-home show that was taped ahead of a Saudi Arabia program without numerous key players on it. And then on Raw, where you would assume the booking was figured out well ahead of time, it seemed like it was rushed, thrown together, and just extremely poorly done, which was massively frustrating for yours truly. Now, uh, you know, when it comes to this show, let's move away from the WWE shows. This show, the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, let me go ahead and tell you what is to come this week. Uh, Thursday, of course, we're going to be back 
with our AEW and NXT show. We're going to break down everything that happens across both of those programs. And then we're going to be back one week from now, same bat time, same bat channel with your next WWE episode. And yes, vintage Chris Vanini will be along for the ride for that episode as well. And certainly we will give him the opportunity to talk about some of what happened this week, especially as it pertains to whatever booking is ahead for us on SmackDown this Friday and Raw next Monday. And let's just hope upon all hopes that Raw is way better next week, back to what it had been for months under Triple H than what it was this week, because that was notably disappointing. Now we're only a couple weeks away from Survivor Series War Games, the final WWE premium live event of 2022. So things are going to get pretty intense here in terms of our podcasting, our ultimate preview. Obviously, after War Games, we'll have an instant analysis. I'm still very excited for SmackDown this week. Curious to see uh, what happens with the men's War Games feud, which really does seem, especially because they didn't talk about it on Raw, it really does seem like it's going to involve the bloodline. I believe they're on the poster for that show. That's exciting. That's what we've wanted this entire time. And, you know, we'll see what transpires there. Just to kind of go over briefly what we talked about on the instant analysis for Crown Jewel, which you should listen to if you have not already. I do still expect Bloodline versus Brawling Brutes and then two other people being added to that team. I hope that Drew McIntyre is one of them. I am not sure who the other will be. Maybe it is Riddle coming out of what happened on Raw. Maybe we'll find out Friday. That's why we watch the shows. So I appreciate all of you listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. A reminder on the way out that this show... So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings on Apple. Also leave a five-star written review. Let everyone know how much you love the show, why you listen, and why they should subscribe. And we will read those five-star ratings and reviews. Really just the reviews because I can't read the ratings. We will read those five-star reviews right here live on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Lastly, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode releases, news, commentary all week, and plenty more. Thank you all once again for joining me, the Silverton here on the latest edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. It is now time for me to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.